Hello and welcome back to Voicecraft for a very special conversation with the writer and musician Andrew Sweeney and philosopher, author, hugely successful record producer and songwriter and one of the founders of the Synthius religious movement, Alexander Bard. Andrew and Alexander record a podcast together, Sweeney vs. Bard, which explores threads that centre on Alexander's series of books with co-author Jan Söderqvist. These are something like pirate radio conversations of deep philosophy, history, social theory, comparative religion, and how all of this bears intimately on the real dynamics at play in our world today and the making of our world to come. You can think about this podcast a bit like that too. Now, I thought about releasing this conversation in two parts, but I've decided instead to share it all together. The theory covered in the first part helps to ground the discussion of praxis towards participation in the new paradigm we're well and truly encountering in 2020. There's more than a few portals, rabbit holes and deep patterns here. I look forward to more conversation with Andrew and Alexander and very much invite you and indeed welcome your participation in the generative field that I at least take this conversation to contribute to. All right. Thank you for being here. And if you enjoy these podcasts, then please consider sharing them or leaving a review and perhaps also to consider supporting it on Patreon at patreon.com slash voicecraft. All right. Much love. Here we go. Very nice to meet you, Alexander. I'm super excited for this conversation, I have to say. The same to you. Thank you. Yeah, I've been spending the last week and a half in particular both your books, uh, Synthism with Jan Soderquist and um, Digital Libido have been really illuminating reads. I've really enjoyed them. So thank you for writing them. Thank you. They're, they're um, two thirds of a trilogy and, and the working title of the trilogy is The Exodology. And um, working on the third book tentatively titled Process and Event. Uh, so Synthism, Digital Libido and Process and Event will be a trilogy together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. I think the thread of exodology is something which uh, brings us all together in an interesting way. So, um, Andrew, you've written uh, an essay about it. And Alexander, as you just mentioned, it's a key theme. And we've sort of titled maybe some sort of direction for this conversation as Exodus from the Old Empire which are kind of fascinating as well. So, mm-hmm. And it has a double meaning, of course, because yeah. none, of us, none of us is English and none of us is American. So it seems we've, we've exited both uh, empires in this case. Uh, one of us is a Canadian, one of us is a South African, one is an Australian, and we can let the audience guess who's which, right? Well, I left England when I was 11. So if we're playing the national identity game, then I'd, I'd still go for England in a game of football or something like this. But... Um, but I'm well, you did to... your exodus. That's the but you did your exodus yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, done you, it already. You left. Yeah. You left the old world, and you're in the new world now. Yeah. yeah, but we're not exactly talking about going to new nation states, really. At the end of the day, I think um, after reading your books, Alexander, the the depth of the change that you speak about, and the kind of um, the fundamentality of the shift in. Uh, environment that we find ourselves interacting and living in is one which is deeper broader than something which can be encapsulated by the nation state so it'd be kind of interesting to sort of get a sense of in the in the from from the big picture when when you're talking about exodology when you're talking about exodus where are we now and where are we potentially going to 
Well, okay. Uh, so human beings either operate through genes or memes. Um, and the genetic is also tied to physical territory. Okay, so as long as we could expand on this planet and just conquer new territory, regardless of who we killed in the process, we could do that. And what Sedeqvist and I are claiming is that that whole process reached an abrupt end in the late 1950s. So ironically, in the late 1950s, we were in the shadow of the Second World War. Uh, we just created the atomic bomb, which meant we just realized that we could kill ourselves in a second. Uh, but also, the late 1950s, China conquered Tibet, and the United States literally conquered Hawaii. So whenever I hear Americans you know, talk about China has to get out of Tibet, always remind the Americans, well, you should get out of Hawaii first, you hypocrites. Right? So we had the last territories that were conquered in the kind of um, a repetition of that achievement, if you consider that a successful achievement, which I think it is from an imperial point of view, it certainly is. China got Tibet and, and America got Hawaii. Um, but 10 years later, um, you got the moon landing. And the moon landing has, you know, been axiomatically celebrated ever since, like a great achievement that human beings managed to set foot on the moon. If we look at it realistically, if we look at world, uh, the world economy over the last, say, 50 to 100 years, we discover that the moon landing was probably the most terrible project human beings have ever undertaken in terms of just wasting money and absolutely nothing. So three guys dance around on the moon. And the cost for each step of those guys dancing around on the moon is like hundreds of billions of dollars, which could have, you know, decreased poverty, saved us from current climate change and all kinds of problems we could have avoided if we spent the money more wisely. So apparently, we stopped being wise quite a long time ago. Like after 1945, we went cuckoo. <laughs> we weren't wise before that because we created Hitler and Stalin and Mao before that. But certainly the response to Hitler and Stalin and Mao was to go completely infantile, youth-oriented, sex-obsessed, hating wisdom, throwing wisdom out through the door, and instead going for something incredibly infantile. And the fact that we can't even see that the end of the exodus towards a new territory reached a definite end in the 1950s, and something that actually had started already 4,000 years earlier, which is the exodus of ideas. Say, you travel from one time period into the next one. You can actually create a higher state of civilization. Not that our minds get any better, we usually get more and more stupid with each step we take in history, but actually through technology and through technological advancements, we can move from one paradigm to the next. And this is why what Sodekvist and I are doing in a very Aristotelian sense was something we call paradigmatics. Paradigmatics is simply looking around at the world you live in, and especially looking around at the world you're moving into, and then try to define what kind of world is that? What would it pay off to invest in? So for example now, early 2020s, would it really pay off to invest in politics? Well, does any one of your friends want to be a politician anymore? No. And America has now resorted to choosing between Cartman from South Park and a Corona corpse for president? It's not, it's not, it's not like they're making an effort to become politicians anymore, right? So politics has gone ironic. Academia has gone ironic. Academia is dead and over. Nobody wants to go into academia any longer. They're, they're suing the hell out of each other these days, what they're doing. And it's gone woke and all those things. And obviously, old industry is dying too because old industry is now being gripped by communication agencies that are trying to politicize even the commercial environment. So they're all done. Okay, that means there's no point in investing in them when investing in the future. Certainly not putting your kids through any of those three institutions or have your kids aspire towards any of them. 
Rather, we have to define what we call in our work an autocracy, like who are going to be the winners in the digital realm. So we move into a world of digital and augmented reality. And the question is, who's going to be a winner in that realm? And the funny thing is, when we started asking these questions 25 years ago, we were pretty alone in actually asking those questions, which is like, the ultimate self-help book is not how to help yourself survive in a dying paradigm. The ultimate self-help book should really be, uh, what would it mean to live in the future since we know as much about the future as we actually do? So this is what a proper paradigmatic should do today. And that's what we work with. Fuck yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for that awesome introduction. Andrew, as a, as a musician and a writer and, um, and an independent thinker who's been following similar threads to myself over the last several years, interest in John Pavakey's work and Jordan Peterson and um, Buddhism and various things. How do you relate to this, this sort of um, this, this picture that Alexander's just laid down? Well, I think um, I'm less of a philosopher than Alexander and I'm more, uh, let's say, in interested in the, uh, I don't know if this is the right word, the interior aspect of the Exodus like um like the mystical aspect of the exodus right so so um i think it's it's a it's a primordial myth and i and i think in the judeo-christian tradition there's all these primordial myths that we're, we're still living so i think yes there's there's an exodus for now like there has to there's a dead and dying world that, that we have to move beyond and there's another world to go to and i th think alexander's work is sort of mapping out like you know how to, how to do that uh-huh and so I'm interested in the spiritual aspect of the Exodus, how to do that, on, you know, on a spiritual level, like, you know, what kind of human being we need to become, right, uh, in order to, let's say, embody this, this Exodus. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. I, sh I should add it that in our work, we consider everything to be religion. So it's either bad or good religion, but you cannot avoid being religious. Um, so yeah. A, yeah, spirit, spirituality here is just basically any form of you know, human exercise towards a certain goal or, or a certain achievement you're, you're setting out. So that's what we agree. I would say that if, if you do exodology, so you're doing the studies of successful and not so successful migrations throughout history. These are both migrations in physical space and migrations in terms of ideas. Okay. So if you do exodology properly, you try to find patterns on what was successful and what worked and to see if it could work again or not. So you try to learn from these. That's exactly when we go back to things like the exodus out of Egypt, the exodus out of Babylon, and the exodus from Europe to Israel, the three major Jewish exoduses, for example. They're also exoduses of ideas, for example, that we originally lived in a nomadic tribal religion, which we call nomadology. Its last remnant today would be, say, Hinduism, which means it's a religion of the eternal return of the same where no improvement is ever possible, and hopefully you avoid things getting worse. But with eventology, with the idea that actually the son has access to more information than the father did, because it's a very masculine trait, but like, say the son has access to more information than the father did, which is according to Marshall McLuhan, the revolution of written language. Once you can write things down, which started about say 8,000 years ago, and then increased over time, uh, you could store information outside of your own brain. And we could do that, the son could then suddenly realize, I could actually potentially create a better world than my dad could possibly do, um, simply because I have access to more information. This is the foundation of technology, 
and therefore is the foundation of civilization. In my case, I even converted to the religion that invented this idea, which is Zoroastrianism. And Zoroastrianism, when I did that in the 1980s, I did my studies of Eastern philosophy. I, of course, I studied all the major Hindu and Buddhist traditions, and that's a, something we all three, an interest we all three share. I studied Taoism and, and Chinese and Japanese philosophy. But when I finally converted, I picked the old Persian philosophical tradition because I was even more interested in that at the time. And then it turns out that today, this is a very important bridge between East and West because the only thing that connects Eastern religion historically with Western meta metaphysics, starting with the Abrahamic religions and eventually going on to the Greeks and European philosophy and all that, the Western tradition, what is west of the Gobi Desert, so to speak, it was east of the Gobi Desert. The only thing that connects the two is actually the Persian tradition. So guys like me who actually have studied this for the past 30 years are becoming really important right now to try to connect Chinese, Indian, European, Middle Eastern thinking. But that wasn't the purpose when I converted. I converted because I love the idea that Zoroaster, as Hegel and Nietzsche points out, Zoroaster is the only really radical new thinker in history in the sense that he was the only one who broke with nomadology. He broke with the idea that everything must always return to the same and said, no, wait a second. It could potentially be different. Uh, with each repetition of the same, there's a slight difference. And if that difference is harvested and nurtured through increased knowledge, which is the name of, with, with, of which the name is technology, then with technology, we can create a civilization. So I'm, I'm totally, I'm a civilizationist. I'm really interested in what has made civilization work in the past. And we look at that question, what's interesting then are the exoduses because what happens is that you've got a lot of dramatic uh, new things happening around you. Like right now we're living in a paradigm shift where like the entire world has been thrown online due to the corona pandemic. And, and something we prepared for and been confused about, an environment that's full of children's diseases like Facebook and Instagram that are obviously not working as intended because we're making all the mistakes you do when you apply the rules of an old paradigm onto a new paradigm you simply have the wrong paradigmatics. When we see all this happening right now in 2020, it's obvious we've been thrown into a new world and the new power is gonna be online. The tech giants have gone through the roof on their stock markets. Amazon, Google, Facebook are now empires. They need to be questioned, even broken up. We have to start fighting them because they're so damn powerful. Now, this was all bound to happen due to naivety because we haven't learned from history that this is what happens at a paradigm shift. Then the question is, so who would then go first? This is why I always tell people that I, I have to be a Nietzschean, but I expect my students to be more Marxist. What I mean with that is that Nietzsche proposes the Ubermensch. He proposes somebody who steps forward and goes ahead and walks into the new territory and thereby becomes an example others can copy. And the question then for my students is, if I work very hard, on defining the Nietzsche and Ubermensch in the digital realm today. Who goes first? Who becomes the netocrat? Then it's your damn job to make sure as many people as possible can become netocrats. But this is where the hard stuff comes in. We cannot learn from the previous paradigm because the previous paradigm, due to its exploitative approach towards the world and towards human beings, was built on the naive assumption that we could all have access to all the information at all times and handle it. And this is called the Bard Absolute. Not my name, Bard, but B-A-R-R-E-D. Like you, you, in religion, you need a bar, you need a wall that says you cannot go beyond this wall because you're not prepared for it yet. In Eastern thinking, this is different between Sutra and Tantra. 
in existence, or Aster religion, the Jews are adamant about it, but Islam and Christianity was swept away because these pop religions wanted everybody to have access to God at all times. And we inherited that in Western society. We inherited this tradition that, oh, everything is available to everybody at all times. And now parents are coming along to philosophers like me and said, my God, my five-year-old is watching violent pornography online. What am I going to do? Well, you've got to go back and look at the last 2,000 years of history. You had a religion that tore down the curtain in the temple and that said God should be available to everybody at all times, meaning that truth should be available to all people at all times. We cannot handle truth unless we're prepared for it. And this is why we work so much now with the different stages in your life, what you can handle when you're a teenager, what you can handle when you're 25, what you can handle when you're 45, what you can handle when you're 65, and possibly one day you can be an elder in your community because you've lived life to its fullest and you're ready to give back. And this is what these wisdom cultures have always been about. This is why Jordan Peterson, John Favarki, these cognitive scientists, these art historians are back in vogue and why people are listening to them because people are realizing if we don't get the wisdom right this time, before we enter digital, we're going to have violent porn thrown at babies who are three months old. So this is what our work is about. This is where my work with Sedekvist ties in with the work of Peterson and Favarki and why they're old friends. Now you get oh. the bigger picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I, can, I, can I just uh, ask one question before you interject? Uh, about, about, you know, about this, uh, this netocratic elite, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. This is, I think, the thing that people have the hardest time uh, with is, 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 that, is the idea of the elite and the idea of, a of authority, right? Somebody has, has more authority than somebody else in this egalitarian childish sort of milieu so i i think that the the hard thing for people to hear is is that there, there's an there's an elite right and there's also an authority i've been thinking about this and i was thinking i'm thinking about how do you say that without sounding like an asshole like because no sound like the an tradition yeah. the traditions yeah. that i work in you you don't just walk right in the door and you're and and have everything offered to you uh, there's there's stages before you get there and, and there's work and there's study and there's development and, and all that no that wait a second wait a second andrew yeah. i am not here to put on some yeah. gloves and give people the hard news in a soft way because we don't have the time for that we don't have the okay. time for that when things are happening as quickly as they're happening now, we got Peterson from Varka, these guys out that warned us, at least in America and Europe for the last few years. Okay, things are happening such a rapid pace that we don't have time to put on gloves and say nice things any longer. I think go back to the original mythologies, exactly like Peterson says. Go back to the story of the Exodus out of Egypt. Yeah. The Egyptians were warned again and again and again. And finally, you had to paint something on your door because the angel of death would walk by and kill the, the oldest son in the family because he was so angry with the old society. This is all symbolic, but it's, it's the anger with an old paradigm that is so corrupt and decadent that it just refuses to move its ass. The elite here were the Hebrews. The Hebrews were clearly, as Sigmund Freud pointed out, an Egyptian sect who knew that they had to move into a monotheistic paradigm. They'd failed miserably with Atonism. During Atnatan and Tutankhamun, they'd failed. And Tutankhamun had become their Christ. He was killed by the priest. There was an Atonist sect in Egypt that were a minority, but they were sharp as hell and they were smart and they took to the new technology, they took to the new paradigm. They understood what was required in the next phase of history. And they declared that it was called Atonism and later become Judaism. So this cult 
had to leave Egypt. And, and, and they, they were left. also slaves. They're also slaves, which is interesting. From a That's exactly what an elite are. The elite is yeah. always the slaves of the last paradigm who've studied deep, worked hard, and don't get rewarded for it. This is the exact mm -hmm. parallel to Karl Marx's proletariat. You've got to remember that Marx is Jewish. Yeah. Marx gets this. So Marx and Freud, these guys coming out of the Hegelian revolution in Europe, they're really understanding history fully. And I think Freud was onto this in his last work before he died, Moses and Monotheism, an excellent book to study this deeper. We're digging deep into it to now fully understand and embrace Judaism and the heritage we get from the Jews, right? But the Hebrews left Egypt. They were an elite. They were the original proletariat who walked out on the old into the new because they couldn't make in the old what they wanted to achieve in the new. But yeah. then by bringing that faith out into the open, more people can be recruited and join the faith later in the new promised land. And we can just, we can just move that into the world of ideas. And then it's, instead of discussing which territory we're going to do this in, because all you need to be digital these days is to have a city state like in Europe, Estonia, Slovenia, and Iceland are preparing for this revolution. You already got Dubai and Singapore. You don't need huge territories like the United States. You don't need a huge territory like communist China to actually be part of the new revolution because it's all about putting a data center somewhere. That data center is more powerful than all the territory you could ever conquer. So it's not about physical territory this time. That's the whole point. This is a vertical exodus, not a horizontal one. It's a vertical exodus. It's an exodus into the world of ideas, into super ideas. Into of, depth, yeah. Into yeah. depth, yeah. Depth, which we call the root of the phallus, so that we can be phallic and direct the phallus upward. So the root of the phallus is to learn from history more than ever, study history deeper than ever, use data to get into the, the, the original nomadology, the original sociontology, get into, get into where human beings come from, understand better what it means to be human. Like, like, like if the machine is going to ask us, say, in 20 years' time, who are you? And the philosophical question we need to answer, well, what does it mean to be human? We have to answer that question again, but deeper at this time, to be able to shoot higher, aim higher. That's the exodology we're doing now. And that's the exodus we're preparing for. So this exodus is an exodus into the digital realm for sure. And the question is, we're seeing the first of the three unitocracies already. Those are the tech giants. We projected this 25 years ago. First, you got the informationalists, the guys who pick the data and process the data. Second, we're going to have the sensocrats. We're going to live in police states. That's for sure. We're going to have cameras and microphones everywhere observing everything we do. Whenever somebody tells me these days, well, I turned off my computer yesterday, walked out of the park, and I'm just like, and you think you went offline? Have you ever heard of satellites? <laughs> Have you ever heard of microphones? They're everywhere now. So the question is, what kind of police states can we have? How can we still be free and liberal within those police states and creative? Because the problem with dictatorship is not a moral one. The problem with dictatorship is that it stops being creative. So those questions need to be answered. That's where we should be now in our thinking as we move forward. And this is why we have to go back to the previous exodus. And, and listen, telling people that we need a new elite, that it's already being established, that's just mincemeat here. Because obviously we have a new elite coming out of Silicon Valley and they're all billionaires. And some of them think better than others. Peter Thiel think better than Elon Musk for, for sure. You know, but at least they're doing what they set out to do. They're informationalists. Then come the censocrats who will replace the current politicians. Why would you vote every four years? Would you vote every second? How could you 
how could you in any way defend a vote every four years for a Corona Corps or Cartman in South Park when you literally vote every second better than you vote every four years? Okay, then after the Sensocrats come, possibly and hopefully the Protopians. Protopia, great word by Kevin Kelly. He found it, he should credit for it. But originally, the idea of Protopians comes from the Persians called Frashokirithi, to live in the forever refreshing Protopia of ever change. It's not utopian, it's not utopian, dystopian. It is an ideal state to live in. Where you create it's not crime. a final enlightenment. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, you know, it's a creative, constantly renewing itself. You know. Yeah, um, it can be a philosophical absolute, but it's certainly not a creative absolute in any way whatsoever. Protopia is a state where philosophy might reach an end. Yes, what it means to be human might reach an end. Yes, we might leave it to the machines to, you know, conquer outer space so we stay on the planet, which we should. Okay, so we might reach an end human history in a way, philosophically speaking, but certainly not creatively. I mean, I, I would say that this could be an artistic golden age more than anything, and we call it protopia. Protopians is what we call these people. So now you've got the three new elites, and you see how the old industry is being replaced by informationalist. Data replaces capital. You see how sensocracy is replacing politics, because that's the imaginary power. And you've got a new narrative being dictated by a new symbolic power. The, the way the academia replaced the church is the way that academia will be replaced by the protopians. And this sort of is the beginning. What we're doing kind of right now is sort of we're starting a new narrative. Like, like this is the, the shadowy realm where, where the, like I think Hegel says that, where the new narrative starts to bubble up. Tim, we sorry, are, I, I we, think I yeah. interrupted you last time I, I, in your last uh, question. We, we, uh, we are literally the Hebrews in Egypt get preparing for the Exodus, and the last warning is about to be signed on the doors. Yes, yes. Uh -huh. Well, that is some beginning. <laughs> Beautiful job. That's, How is that about you, like... Tim? How about you, Tim? Our followers yeah. want to know you better. Why <laughs> is this gorgeous young man sitting exactly. in his shirt in Melbourne showing off his hairy chest? Oh yeah, um, whew, how to integrate that with this last 20 minutes of, um, of uh, philosophical thought and see if we can weave the hairy chest in there towards the end. Whew, man, so, I, so just to describe my, my state with this, it's like there's so, there's so much vision here that I resonate with strongly. And then there's a kind of feeling into it, which wants to depart from all these different places and it's kind of like um it's like there are these different parts that i want to sort of look at and go hmm okay how does this connect to this or my perspective on this is with this vocabulary but then i'm worried about going down one particular route might not necessarily speak to the whole in a way that does actual justice to the resonance which that, that i share for the vision and the whole as presented so my first point would actually be sort of a meta point about the nature of interaction itself and the actual degree of time that's required to really sit with in a relational process, these themes, these concepts, these feelings, and uh, from the grandiosity up actually to the kind of, I don't know if I can use the lateral, but at, the, at the any rate, the kind of embodied sort of breathing it through process. So I'm someone who's interested in both of these things. Hey, I'm interested in the dynamics of, of artful interaction. Um, and I'm also interested in um, a clarity of vision 
and how these kinds of things interact. So as far as what I'm doing and what I'm interested in, it's something like, okay, how, as, as one of the things, how can we get together as an expanding, but a, an appropriately slowly expanding network of interaction so as to involve as much of the human psyche as possible, so as to share in the fullness of perception as possible and use something like a use processes of discernment to together collectively share in a vision that can attend to what's fundamentally worth caring about as well as it can attend to the clarity and um, integrity as far as uh, uh, analysis is concerned. So in this sense, an interest in both analysis and mysticism or the kind of the inside out feeling of what it is to be in relationship as well as the kind of um, clarity and metaphysical um, uh, integrity of what we're talking about. So where that takes this discussion, I'm not sure, but that's how I come at these things from a broad sort of life project perspective. Well, that's great. I mean, Andrew and I, especially when we do our, our webcast together with Thomas Hamrick, who's also um, you know, a tantric teacher, is that there's great vocabulary from the East that's now so common in the West so we can start using it. And you can then apply it later on Christianity and post-Christianity in the West too. There's no problem at all. But you, you're talking, I think, on, on the individual, or as I prefer to say, the individual level, you're talking about meditation and, and, and contemplation practices. And the great thing is that all the Silk Road traditions in the East uh, were adamant that this was really, really important. You, you spent most of your time when you were being religious, actually meditating or contemplating. And, and we know these terms already in India. It's called the dhyana. It's often referred to as yoga practices in the West. It, this is called the dhyana in Iran, Persian practices. Uh, and dhyana, actually, if you look at the word itself, from Sogdon to China becomes chan, and it comes into China, and it becomes tian in Vietnam, it becomes zeon in Korea, and it becomes zen in Japan. So there's a, there's a thread all over the East from Zen in Japan all the way down to the Dhyana in, in India. And so we have all of these traditions of meditation and contemplation practices. And the way it worked along the Silk Route is that you walked into New Oasis and you were a trader. And, and you, you might go to the whorehouse if you were lucky. Or you went certainly to a hospice somewhere and had a meal. And you stayed overnight you know, in the guest house. And, and, and you went to the bathhouse to get clean because you had camel hair and dust all over you. But you most of all went to what's called the Kostag. And the Kostag is the origin of what we today call monasteries. The cloisters and the monasteries of the West actually originated in Asia. And I think Kostag is a beautiful sort of neutral term today for a place where you go to meditate, contemplate, and reflect, right? I would add you also study because there's no point in just sitting there trying to find some kind of empty consciousness and then contemplate on what am I going to spend the day doing? How am I going to be a constructive spirit rather than a destructive spirit today? That's what I do in my Tusha Maiti practices every morning. But on the individual level, if you start, before we start interacting with one another, I think it's really important to stress that it's absolutely pointless in speaking about paradigmatics and speaking about spiritual practices and speaking about how we're going to enter the digital augmented realm, keeping our humanity and our spirituality intact, unless we go back to and learn these practices. How's that for a start? Yeah. 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 Can I yeah. say what I got from what you, what you were saying? Um, the, the first thing that came to my mind is that, is that 
you know, uh, this is it's it's a communal enterprise in some sort, but where where you develop friendship over time, and that 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 you know that makes the ideas uh, that that um, that's the creative process, right? Uh, which is is something to do with friendship. That was my first thought. Um, and I also was thinking about what I've been exploring recently in, in terms of my own practice. And uh, normally I'm a Vajrayana Buddhist, but I've been looking into Jewish esotericism. And uh, what, what you do is you look at, uh, you know, in, in this practice that I'm, I'm exploring, you look at an image, right? And then you allow the mental, you know, associations and you allow the intellect to work on that image and to explore that image. You know, it might be an alchemical image that has sulfur and mercury and the sun and the moon and, you know, all these kind of primordial things. And you, you work on that image intellectually and you, you, you look at it as if you were looking at a, you know, a, you know, an icon or something like that. And you, you, you go deep into that and that's the intellectual aspect. And you do that for 20 minutes. And the next part is, is you try to hold the image uh, in your mind in, in, in silence and that becomes a whole different level of experience. And then the third level, you just drop the whole thing and you have this and you allow it to kind of become a free play, a free creative play of an exploration. So you have to go through these these stages where first you look at the image, you know, and you have the intellectual stage and then and then where it becomes embodied. Right. You know, it becomes not theoretical. Right. Uh, and then the, and then and then and then there's another stage of freedom, which is 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 just pure exploration. And here's, here's one of the good news, philosophically speaking, is that uh, after Immanuel Kant, the West broke with dualism. You, when you use the term embodied here, Andrew, that's very, very important. We actually have today a worldview where we are embodied. So we assume the body and mind are two aspects of the same thing. And, and this is, of course, the dominant tradition of the East, but we actually inherited it in the West. And we did that philosophically before even we started, like Schopenhauer started going to Asia and took Buddha with him back. And, you know, Hegel and Nietzsche took Zoroaster with him back and all that. But, but actually, even before that, we had that break. The, I think the break between Kant and Hegel in Western philosophy in the early 1800s is the break with dualism towards monism. And, of course, Spinoza was the pioneer of that long before Hegel who also was a monist. He was a monist as opposed to Cartesian dualism. But we already left the idea that we can be human beings and separate uh, the body from the mind. And in all work I see today, all spiritual work I see today, this, this embodied experience is absolutely central. So this is great because actually that means that a lot of the Western tradition that would have been very problematic today is no longer problematic. It's already out the window. I mean, it's even Christianity is trying to find some modest roots today. And hopefully they go back to the Neoplatonists try to find that. But, but we are already living in accordance with an understanding of that we live in a modest universe and that we are modest human beings within that universe. So these, yeah, practices must be embodied. Absolutely. It makes no sense otherwise. And, and actually, we know from history that people who try to separate body and mind and walk out into the forest. So Raster warned us about this. Any guy who walks out into the forest and thinks his mind is separated from his body, what we call the pillar center afterwards, those are the guys that always caused havoc in history. People who are not embodied can have the brightest, smartest ideas. But when you look closer at those ideas, they come from people who deny their own bodies, who deny their own sexuality, for example. And those people are always the most dangerous. I think a lot of the stuff that's come out of Silicon Valley so far has been of that nature. 
a connotation. Yeah, Gnostic dualism, right? Gnostic you know, dualism, Sil yes. Silicon Valley is about escaping the body in some sense into some kind of, uh, you know, machine. Yeah, that uploading thing. Like if you were uploaded into a machine and you no longer had access to your body, that would be the most horrible thing ever. That means the thought hasn't even been thought through by the people who, who you promote uploading. It's, it's, we got to get that naivety out the door quickly. So we, we're really attacking an internet that is just full of children's diseases. It's, it's, right now, it's, it's infantile, it's hyper-narcissistic, it's fostering all the worst things in people. But it's not through regulating the internet you're going to get it right, because the people who are supposed to regulate the internet now, who are they? Well, they're woke people and they're Platonist engineers and all kinds of weird people that make it even worse. Uh, right now, I don't think we can regulate the internet in any constructive, meaningful way because the people who are trying to do it have not done their paradigmatics properly first. And in that case, it's better to leave it anarchic and let people learn through their own mistakes than rather try to politically or commercially dictate what people should consume and see when they go online because that's going to that's gonna be even worse than what we have today. That's what I'm adamant about right now. Better to stay with the anarchy and try to learn as quickly as possible from the mistakes we're making. So we're having Platonists who created cynical platforms like Facebook, which is all about owning your eyes and you know, putting advertisement into your system without even knowing about it. Like the most sinister thing you could ever do. Like, you, you don't like spam? We're going to force feed you spam. <laughs> That's Facebook. Okay, we have discovered that on a massive scale already. People are healthily now preferring to take a walk in the park rather than stay in those environments. But we got to go back and see what we can do with the internet. But I think leading by creative example is a much better way than censorship right now. Because I'm terrified if politicians move online right now and try to censor what we consume online. Because then we're going to get no better than communist China. Then the West is going to be exactly like communist China. It's going to be terrible. Yeah, there are some movements in Australia to do just this thing. I haven't looked into it much, so I can't speak to it too much. But, you know, somewhat ironically, there was um, Google and Facebook letting, letting me know that, hey, there's a danger. There's a danger to your uh, freedom of choice on the Internet here. And it's coming in the form of the Australian government wanting to sort of um, upregulate certain media sources that are legacy media sources in Australia over potential alternative kind of sources. And I think there's some sort of guise that coronavirus and misinformation and that whole dynamic is being used to sort of try and get this in. I haven't followed it, but it's interesting. Oh, yeah. And they're using the corona pandemic as an excuse, which is really when you should watch out, right? So, we have to understand that these old institutions are falling apart and why they're now also victims to woke ideology or pseudo ideology, simply because nobody with the right minds are there any longer. But we still have politics and we still have academia and we still have old industry around and old industry is forcing us to buy their products and, and academia is forcing us to believe the bullshit they put out, although nobody's listening any longer. And, and who reads an academic paper, for God's sake, right? And, and politics is, is like a bunch of losers left, but they all try to regain power by pointing out and moralizing against the online world today as if the world they represent would be any better. Every time students come up to me here in Scandinavia and ask me about fake news, I remind them that the printing press produced only but nothing but fake news, but it was fake news according to the power that ruled that society. And actually what they call fake news online is often something that questions that power. Bad or good, 
up to you to decide for yourself. Just get yourself five different news sources. Just like the only way we can fight dictatorship eventually is by being able to give our data to five different sources and five different agents rather than to just one. I think that ultimately at the end of the day, that's gonna be the models we have to start creating soon. But I think censoring the internet right now, I'm totally against it. And, and I don't mean this as a classic libertarian, I mean this as a Marxist, I mean this as a Nietzschean, I mean this as a Hegelian, I mean this as an historian. It's just because if you're going to have censorship, then who are, who are going to be the censors? When it's going to be the very people who come from the old paradigm and understand the new paradigm the worst and try to prevent the new and novel from happening. That'd be like the worst thing ever. So right now we've got to live with the anarchy for, for quite a while yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... There are a couple threads which I think might take me about eight hours to actually stitch together. So you're going to have to help out um, because I, I want to, it, it would be really beautiful to introduce the um, distinction and development in the history of ideas from relativism to a sort of relationalism that you speak about in, in synthism. This is something that um, I have a lot of appreciation for and I think is resonant among many of the philosophers that are circling this kind of discussion. Um, and I, I wonder if we could tie that also to the, the following things, because um, I know you're involved in men's work and I know you um, um, appreciate the importance of mentorship and the kind of, um, well, obviously wisdom traditions and how we can extend the hand at, all developmental levels to become um, what we can be so as to properly take responsibility and act in a mature way in a way that can respond to the dynamics of our times in relationship with each other um, and then also also there's a thread in some of your thinking and it's part of this notion of exodus as well right that there's a certain movement away from um, a large block let's say a large block of people to me, there is, there, I wouldn't say inconsistency, but there's a bit of work, at least in my mind, to sort of weave these things together because um, this, the, the idea that there can be a hard cut place between who can or cannot participate is something that, well, either we should be wary of or take great care in making. I mean, we do have to exclude, right? There, there comes a point where conflict is unavoidable. I'm not making a case that some sort of radical inclusion is what I'm interested in here. However, from a from a from some sort of from a perspective from a perspective that is most resonant with me, it's like there's there's a when I, when I look at human beings, when I look at the vast majority of human beings, and I, I, I really sit with them, I see and I feel a longing for a kind of connection and um, place in the world that I see as something which I inherently, I care for that thing. I, I, I feel it in a way that I want to support it and I want to be in right relationship with it, but I want to do so in a way that's sustainable and not energetically destructive of my own immediate domain of necessary um, what, uh, stability, um, homeostasis, or what, or what have you, right? So, so there's this interesting phenomenon where, as far as I can tell, the hand should be extended maximally for integrous interaction. And yet at the same hand, 
on the same on the other hand we are speaking about something which is a a movement away from a kind of previous paradigmatic attitude which is not fit to actually be sustainable in the world as it is currently developing so how is that as a sort of frame is that something that's popping up for you as like uh what can we say about this I think what I'm writing a lot about, in my, and both Andrew and I are involved in men's work here in Europe, we should say that. Uh, but uh, we talk about the term adultification. So if, if Jordan Peterson, for example, and John Favarki and I share something in common, it's that we want to adultify the world. What we mean with adultification is that adultification was absolutely essential in the original tribal environment. At certain ages, you were expected to do certain things, otherwise you wouldn't get your reward. And the ultimate reward would be right of passage. And even after the right of passage, you would have to go through a period as a young adult before you were actually fully accepted as an adult. So the adultification process has been destroyed by the society we lived in. And it's been destroyed because we human beings are born with being given absolutely everything. And that's sucking the tit. And that's the way it should work. Okay, the mamilla, we call it the mamilla rather than the tip, but the mamilla is there as soon as it's born. We get out of the matrix, which is like nine months of absolute paradise. Everything is given to you. You don't even have to think. There's no sense of self in the matrix, in the womb, because you don't have to think. You don't have to solve problems. Uh, and actually, that's not even the case when you instinctively crawl your way up to the tit and start sucking the tit. But the mamilla and the magic of all the breast milk you get when you suck it, like it comes from out of nowhere, okay? That is the original fantasy we live in. And that fantasy is then tore apart. And the problem is our society does not encourage children to love how these things are torn apart for them, how these fantasies are destroyed, and how the new, even tougher, even more brutal reality is opening up behind each curtain that you tear down. The first one of those is called the phallic intrusion. It should happen when you're one year old. And it's simply called the phallic intrusion because the phallus is what, what intrudes into your relationship to the mamilla. And your childhood is then the relationship between the mamilla that supports you and provides for you at all times. And you're playing a grown-up. That's what being a child is, playing grown-up, while you're striving towards the phallic state, which is to be a proper grown-up. And you want to be grown-up so bad. And a healthy child wants to be grown up so bad. And one day you get to that point, your biology first kicks in. Hey, your genital organs grow and they start functioning in a dramatic new way you never thought would happen, right? And then you are actually prepared through your studies and through your playing as a child to become an adult. Now, what we have to understand is that this process is broken down. So I'm often talking to 25-year-olds. Who, who sound like 12-year-olds when they talk. And the first thing I do is I don't blame them for that. I try to give them a bigger picture and explain that we have postponed adulthood in our society. This is, again, how we prioritized youth over wisdom. We prioritized childhood over adulthood. We postponed adulthood, pushed it further into our lives later to be encountered later. And this fights and struggles enormously with our biology. And that's why we have so many problems with young girls with eating disorders and, and, and kids come in, teenagers come in and they can't understand how the sexuality actually operates and, and the obsession with consent culture, which is completely understandable because the, the guys don't even know when the consent happens any longer to the girls because they're not mature enough to understand the signaling. So many of the cultural problems we have today are simply a problems of that the adultification process doesn't happen when actually we're obliged to make it happen. We cannot fight our own biology. At, at, at a certain age, you need to be this 
amount of adult to be able to handle life. Now, once you've been able to handle adult life, you also know that not everybody can go to a dinner party. The host decides who gets to go to the dinner party. Not everybody gets to sleep with a beautiful girl in the bar. Actually, maybe only one guy gets to sleep with her, or not even him. You'll be turned down. You get no's. These are the barred absolutes we have in our life already. And to be really honest about it here, we're sitting right now in Australia and France and Sweden with our microphones on, with our digital equipment, and we're wealthy guys in wealthy countries. The vast majority of people on this planet are poor and they live in poor countries, and we have borders that will not permit them to come and visit us when we're located. These are, again, barred absolutes. So our lives are full of these barred absolutes, and, and the, the, the sooner the way to teach the kids that, I'm sorry, you're not going to get everything in your life. And by the way, somebody had to support your mother when she gave you that breast milk so she could give it to you. It didn't just mystically, magically come out of nowhere. Somebody put in some really hard work for her to be able to breastfeed you. And for kids to understand, ah, there's cause and effect, and there are these beautiful processes. And once they understand that they can become truly adult and only then can they have adult relations with other adults, which is a real adulthood. It is not about you. It's about the relations that you pursue and get involved with and interact with as an adult so you one day can become a parent and have a child. Again, another relationship. We, we can't do these relationships properly unless we get this right first. And I think that's why the call for the adultification of society is so strong. Can I respond, uh, Tim, to, to what you we were saying? Of Make course, sense. I agree with all that. And, uh, and um, that adultification, you know, uh, um, the question of being an adult, what occurs to me is, is you, you are in service you know, to the world, which I think is what you're longing for in, in, your, in, in, the, in your question is to be of service to the world. That is something to do with being an adult. In the Buddhist tradition, they call that the Bodhisattva or something, right? It's not about you anymore. It's about uh, serving the world, right? Um, so you, you grow out of your adolescent self-concern and, and, you know, you know 20, 20 something people are often, they're very concerned, especially today where there's this self-obsession, this self-contraction, this self-concern where you're not open to the world. So I, I think that, that the altruistic thing is, is, yes, you're open to the world and helping people, you know, in, 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 a, in a radical sense. But at the same time, you're, you're brokenhearted because you're like Neo walking through the matrix and you see all these people and there's no hope for them in some sense, right? Uh, and, and there's nothing you can do about it and they're not your friends, uh, you know? Um, uh, um, unless, unless what you need to do is find the right people to be around who encourage you and lift you up. And, and then in that way, you, you, you might help those people, you know, who are completely, um, imprisoned, uh, in, in the matrix, imprisoned in this mechanical, you know, uh, you know, uh, who are just kind of stuck in, in, um, um, you know, just mechanical thinking and, and don't have any freedom whatsoever. Yeah, various kind of um, reciprocal closing patterns of, of of addiction is something I'm hearing you say. I mean, it's it's something that um, obviously John Baveki speaks about yeah. quite a bit. But 
you know, addiction does characterize so much of, of modern life. And of course, but it's, it's an addiction that is so uh, hidden that it, you don't even know it's an addiction. It's just your life, mm -hmm. right? Well, it, it doesn't, it doesn't the addiction problem. And I agree with Tim, it's massive right now. Doesn't the addiction uh -huh. problem precisely come in into history when we stop believing the future? And especially for young men. Okay, I, I work, I support some women with women's work, but I work mostly with young men. Mm, I did not study psychiatry, but I love it. And I work with psychiatrists and I'm a psychoanalyst. And okay, the time I get off when I don't, you know, enjoy myself having conversations with you guys and reading books and writing books, okay, which is what I love. I, I try to help guys out that have these disorders right now. And addiction is, is, is always all over the place. And I just try to teach them, listen, there might not be a Peter Pan syndrome here. The problem might not be that you're too much of a child still and that you're too immature yet still and you're too narcissistic although you're 25 and that was okay when you were 15, but it's not okay any longer. You should have found your purpose. You should have found meaning in your life by the time you're at right now when you're 25. But what happens is that when you don't believe in the future, and that could be for very healthy reasons, that could be because nobody talks about the future in the society where you live and everybody stopped believing in it, that means a friend of mine, Peter Towson, who's a friend of uh, Andrews, he's like, a, he's like a savant. He came up with the term. He said, wait a second, you guys are working with the Peter Pan syndrome all the time. Why don't you work with the opposite? What do you mean? Why don't you work with the fact that a young man can be incredibly healthy, well prepared for life, but he lives in a really deranged age where nobody talks about the future at all. And as soon as you don't talk about the future, your mind will go depressed because your mind will circulate back and go back, eternally go back to everything you've done in your life and you will blame yourself for all the shortcomings you had. Because you get n there's no meaning to anything you went through because it doesn't lead forward to anything else. And this lack of purpose and meaning is incredibly painful. And the, we call it the Caligula syndrome because we all think of Caligula, the Roman Empire, as an evil guy because we were always taught in school that Caligula was really evil. He burned our Rome and killed people all the time. But Caligula actually was probably a very healthy young man who grew up with a really nasty uncle, Tiberius, and was brought up by him. And then basically one day, Tiberius walked into the room and told Caligula, you're now the Roman emperor. You're now uh, the king of the world. You know what? Everybody hates you and wants to kill you. What are you going to do next? Well, you would be paranoid, wouldn't you, right? And the paranoia that Caligula must have experienced at that time is precisely the paranoia you get when there is no future. Mm. So depression means you go back and just rehearse everything everyone through. And as a man, at least, women blame it on everybody else, and that is called borderline diagnosis. Men blame it on themselves, and that's called male depression. And we're seeing a pandemic of this depression right now. Depression and bipolarity is everywhere, young men. And I try to teach them, it's not your fault. This is because we stopped believing in the future. So because we, we don't have an exodus, sorry to that. interrupt, but we don't have an exodus myth. That, that's the problem, right? Which comes yes. back to, uh, we don't have this exodus myth, which is, means and, that you can break out of your present situation and then there will be something, uh, there will be a promised land. And it's not about you being part of the cool gang who do the exodus, not at all. All you need to do, young men, is tell them of, of the exodology. Tell them digital will create an, an endless opportunity for humanity to show themselves creatively in a way we've never seen before. The collaboration between man and machine. We have no idea how fantastic that could be if we get this right. So you can give them this sort of protopian hope. And that's what we do. The protopian hope is what you need to give young men, for example, to get them out of these depressions and the addictions that come with it. Otherwise, you would just treat addiction. How do you treat that? 
you put medication into their systems and you have to, but you actually do it just to calm them down and keep them alive, to be honest about it, to then foster them, to present them with a protopian hope that they can be a part of. It's, that's what great movements have done throughout history. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, it seems to me pretty clear. <laughs> this is a very trivial statement, but vision, the, the phallic vision, the, um, the absence of masculinity in a specific sense is something you speak about quite a lot. And I think it's, um, I think it's, I think it's critical to discuss. I think it's very interesting. My sense is that it's bi-directional. This, um, uh, what we, what we seek or, or what we can realize in consciousness as the sort of stimulus to um, counteract or, or veer off the reciprocally closing, depressive, addictive kind of cycle, one that's only based on, I mean, you're articulating it as something that's only looking backwards and just recursively going over its own experience and it's just cut off from the world and other people in some fundamental sense. My sense is that the, um, the, the, the looking backwards, I like thinking in terms of the metaphor of an ember and an echo. I don't really know how I can technically build that out in a way that's fitting for this. Which is means that you can break out of your present situation and then there will be something. I certainly grappled with depression for a long time. And it's pretty easily traceable in my own life because of my parents' divorce and moving from England to Australia, moving from a certain place of connectedness and an excellent education to essentially somewhere rural with um with with a school that was not so great and an altogether very different experience i ended up not doing lots of my final exams and you know like went a different sort of path um so there was that there was that disconnection there but there was something which um tuning into like there was a basis of care that i had as a child which not everybody has and i, I appreciate that but if we even go um psychodynamic or depth psychological and, and consider the the womb state as being that state where there is that potential kind of oceanic boundlessness it's often spoken about as and Stanislav Grof of course um, develops yeah develops this work very interestingly in his observations from LSD research in the 50s and 60s super super interesting um, although, of course, even in those cases, um, if the pregnant mother is not having a great time and it's not a good pregnancy, you can have complications there. And he speaks about unearthing the kind of experiences of actual um, his perinatal matrices or the stages in the birthing process going wrong in some fundamental sense. So there's a there's a horrible sense in which um, maybe even not all human beings have a kind of um, an unadulterated sense of connection that is that we can really tune into. Although I'd say even in that case, there's something, there's work to be done and it can be realized. But there is something beautiful about that, about that connection. And if we're speaking about monism, now, of course, we're speaking about process and event. I appreciate that. There's novelty, right? And uh, following Whitehead and, and what have you, I, I love that you work, work this into your metaphysics. But there is this phenomenon that we are, in fact, we can, it's, it's you know, might be a, equivocational to speak in this way. We are all connected, man, in some fundamental sense. Now, the mystical element of this, that we can return, that we can remember and realize these kind of states of connection, this is something distinct in, in a way from the forward-facing vision, but also deeply informs 
the dynamics or some of them at least that we want i think want to see present in a forward-facing vision not a final utopia but that, that but that there's something worth caring about at all because oh. when i hear you know being in relationship with machines and robots it's like it could be cool but why do i care about it it's like i what like what do we care about and i think that's it's a bi-directional thing i just wonder what you think about that i just well, want to say one are, thing that yeah. alexander starts because you'll probably say more than me we were talking about the dark renaissance today uh, on the chat and so we have the exodus myth in the front and let's say the dark renaissance perhaps you know that's you know it's it, renaissance rebirthing and all and all that sort of stuff myth comes so i would say like also that the zen arrow goes both ways so you have the exodus going this way and then you have the renaissance going, hmm. going that way that's just something to throw in the mix before alexander oh yeah yeah because when we talk about depression, you recycle your own life and it becomes uh, an inverted narcissism you never asked for. The tragedy of sitting with a depressed guy is that he's narcissistic and he, that's the last thing he wants to be, but he can't think of anything else but blaming himself in the process. He's not going deep enough though because he's only going to his own history. And when we talk about deep history, mm -hmm. or the root of the phallus, it's the history of all mankind. Mm -hmm. It's the history of at least the last 200,000 years and hopefully even deeper than that and, and try to understand where do we come from as a human species and where do I fit into that? So that, that's what I, I, I would say the tragedy we have ahead of us or the problem to solve we have ahead of us is that we can definitely define that as long as we are loyal to a clan or a tribe, we can find purpose and meaning within that clan or that tribe because we've always done that historically. But what the Jews set out to do when they created the Jewish nation, which was the first nation in history, was that and this was actually the exodus out of Egypt. It was the origin of nationalism and nationalism as a religion. They should be one of the same thing. And that's what the Jews practiced. And Hegel built on, he wrote his books in the, in, in the 19th century. He used the Jewish nation as the perfect example of the perfect nation, nationhood. But nationalism was an attempt at stretching the imagination to at least those who speak like you, or at least share your beliefs. So it's a larger population than just merely clan or tribe. And of course, before that, we have all the major stories. This is the foundation of religion. The major stories that we have two rivers here and they share a river system and either they go to war with each other all the time, or we have stories like Cain and Abel that warn them what's gonna happen if the two river systems don't see a shared common fate together, the shared future together. And, and that's what religion essentially is. You got the hill up there, we share that hill, we come from there and we go towards that goal, which is like the riverbanks of the Delta that we also share and the rivers are separating between and that's where we build the temple. As we build the temple to unify the two cultures, the unification of the two cultures. This is what civilization has tried to do so hard for the past 5,000 years. And if you can be part of that to give your purpose and meaning in all your life, I would say there's an almost timeless quality to trying to create the narrative to unify people today. We call these philosophies cosmopolitanism. That is actually, if there is no outside, there is no other, when all human beings are part of the same tribe, okay? That's hard because usually we have another tribe that we're opposed to and that what gives us identity. But it's a cheap route to identity we used for 5,000 years so we can't afford to use it any longer. We've got to have some kind of a shared global identity now, which is fiendishly difficult. Derrida, 
um, you know, and, and a lot of these philosophers of the, of the 20th century realized this after the atomic bomb in 1945, they spent an awful lot of time and energy on trying to re-explore Kantian models for that, Hegelian models for that, old mystical spiritual traditions for that, to try to see if we could unify humanity. And of course, we also have another ambition here, which is ecotopianism, which is just environmentalism plus. It is to develop the civilization that can handle a sustainable planet, which then has access to the technologies that enables that to happen. So ecotopianism and cosmopolitanism and possible synthesis are just isms we now invent for people to play, start playing with these bigger ideas to then pull them down, put them into your own meditative contemplative practices, and then start building communities from that. Yeah. The, 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 the only way you can do it. Yeah. And that's, that's what you see. Process of describing, yeah. right? When you, when you first. Yeah. Favarkis work and Peterson's work. And then, yeah. Yeah, but Sorry. our work, like the work of Avarka Peterson and Bartosz, we all tie into one another. Greg Enriquez is doing this in America right now, trying to completely redefine what psychology is. Okay, so we're all working on sort of systemic thinking, and Jordan Hall obviously does this, and Dennis Mackenberg do this too. So there's a lot of guys out there trying to work on new, larger models or systems that we can think to then, but then we have to be activists and actually have to implement them. And that starts with your own personal spiritual practice starts there and then who else lives nearby to you so you can share the experience one or two mornings every every week and share meditative contemplative practices that's the building of a congregation starts there then that congregation can get socially involved in the neighborhood where you live well to start where well, you've got tons of psychiatry patients lining up who need more than just psychiatric help right yeah. so well, yes so so that that's that's how i see it going forward yeah yeah no i it's here, I think though it, there's there's a challenge because um my sense at least is that the ears that are at least interested to hear what we're speaking about are not um you're not likely to find them around your actual physical location unless you move somewhere where there happen to be clusters already gathering. So the people that I connect with most around these kind of ideas not that i can't have conversations with lots of people but people that are more committed to um con contemplating these things together are in fact from all locations in the world and of course that's when we are speaking about the kind of um city in some sense as a digital city now there's still something to tie back in here and this is something that jordan hall was speaking about with his civian project he was on the podcast a few episodes ago and we're seeing this movement toward, or at least an interest in smart villages. Future thinkers are building one of these. It's definitely within this um, solar system of thinking in terms of how can we live together well in an embodied sense, but participate in the online commons and market and be innovative because we're living so well together and taking care of ourselves, practicing things together. We can be more generative and you, know, you can see how the, those things kind of work. My sense is, is that, at least with the Voicecraft project, Voicecraft Collective, is that shared experiences of, um, of meaningful dialogue. So John Vivekis is talking about dialogos, of course. Um, the key thing for me in the years of this project has always been be part of transformative conversations. There's my own personal bias in here, of course. But what we're experimenting with, at least, is how can we, in fact, come together and tune into a kind of shared exploration and integration, not just about these themes, but you can um, begin to form connections, begin to 
contemplate things like integrity and and emergence and whatever it is and um I think this is a key thing, like forming connections in a sort of metacultural space, having access to move between different communities online where there are protocols developed for interaction that is like a shared, almost, you could say ritual, I think more like ceremony um, where we can know how to connect with the people we actually can most benefit from connecting with, but still be in some sort of resonant touch with a way of integrating these big picture perspectives of where we are with some of the more like real physical dynamics of our time how can we find the people to do things locally with i think is is an interesting question and i think the relationship between both is important absolutely uh, i'll give you an example the synthesis book was greatly inspired by burning man Mm-hmm. And Burning Man stopped being a major event for 80,000 Californians in the Nevada desert already 30 years ago when he started expanding across the world. So Larry Harvey's um, vision for Burning Man was that this would be way too vulnerable if it was all about the Nevada festival. And that's why he basically set up a model with just 10 simple principles that anybody in the world was allowed to copy. And as long as they copied and reported back to Burning Man headquarters, they were even given a certificate like you're an official burn. Now, there are thousands of burns around the world, and I've helped out a lot here in Europe because in Europe we've experimented and invented new formats like urban burn and things like that, like smaller formats where a lower threshold for people to participate for the first time. Because to me, when I came to Burning Man, it are all the qualities of a new spiritual movement. I know, yeah, it is wealthy white Californians who go there. We don't even have to get started. But again, I expect elites who can't afford to, to start the new ideas first. For them, the ideas to, to you know, be spread wider. Sometimes great ideas come from the bottom up too, but sometimes they actually come top to bottom. But with Burning Man, it was clear that you can go at least for eight days and live in a temporary communist utopia where we ban money and you, you are self-reliant, you take care of yourself, and here are the simple rules you need to follow for that to happen. And for example, we got an event here in Scandinavia called the Borderland. And the Borderland this year, if it had happened, Corona stopped, it will happen next year, was 6,000 people gathered without a single person with professionally employed full-time to work on the event. It's so flat in its structure that 6,000 people can manage to live together for eight days and create a really fantastic event together without nobody getting paid anything, okay? I love those ideas right now because again, all of these sort of proto-spiritual ideas we see right now, call them spiritual prototypes. The the smart villages are certainly included in that, but anything you do anywhere in the world today that works will become a story. As soon as it becomes a story, the brilliant thing with human beings is that they're great at mimicking. They mimic bad stuff when they got nothing else to mimic. They mimic terrible advertising and start smoking cigarettes if they get nothing better to mimic. But when they got great things to mimic, that's what they prefer. Human beings have a liking towards mimic constructive ideas. So if somebody implements an idea like this and not just talks like we guys are doing right now, but actually implements an idea like this, like say, builds a digital monastery in France or Australia and Sweden right now that is augmented, meaning it also has a physical department and a building and a house somewhere where pe- people can move and go into deep studies and meditation practice and things like that, like monasteries used to be. These monasteries are going to come back in a big way oh, yeah. because people have such a great need for them. And every one of them is then an example for others to look at. And I think the role modeling aspects are what important. If you move towards some kind of ideological hierarchy like 
okay, you have to believe this and this and this. Well, then we're going to kill it instantly. And if it's all about, you have to learn how to listen properly to others and not use the wrong words. But you do have to learn how to listen properly to others though. You do. But if you go into tonality and etiquette before you go into substance, you're done. That's exactly what the woke movement is done. And that's why it's failing on a massive scale. Because at the end of the day, substance such as sustainability of the planet, uh, does this work? Do we take responsibility for the budget? Actually, things cost money. You know, we are surrounded in a commercial world. We are surrounded by a commercial world that we have to have a relationship towards. Uh, do we make sure that the right people get in through the gate and actually that there's a way to throw people out that shouldn't have been here in the first place? Or are we just naive and hippie-ish and let everybody in and then fail? Okay. So all of these, I think, I think all of these things have to be attended to. And, and what I said is that, yes, you have to learn how to listen to other people. Otherwise you go stupid. Actually, not only that, you have to learn how to people who disagree with you, which we call antagony, beautiful mm-hmm. word, because otherwise you end up in an echo chamber and we'll learn what that is the last 10 years. You become stupid. But we also so, know that they're very hard to resolve unless there's a certain artfulness and in interaction and capacity to be able to take another perspective that can only really come if there's a capacity to regulate oneself. And so there's this dynamic interaction between capacity to listen and capacity to regulate oneself. So this, I think, is where the feminine comes the in. dynamic between the feminine and the masculine there that you're just exactly. No, no, I don't. I don't, I don't even no. think it's that. I don't think that's feminine or that's just passive or open aggression you're talking about in the case it goes wrong. No, I think this is, if you look back at the into the last 30 years and look at forums that have existed for 30 years, and I'm, I'm a member of a couple of those myself, they were all well moderated. They, they had a set of rules you need to follow like Burning Man and they were moderated. Somebody kept check of who walked in, who walked out and how things were conducted. And so you got a code of conduct within that environment. It's quite easy, actually. It's just that you need it. You can't just, you know, say, oh, we started this thing and anybody wants to can join because that's I exactly totally what agree with you. Facebook forums that fail. Yeah. No, I totally we agree know with you. that. We know that. We, we have that experience after 30 years. Again, role modeling. Look at anybody who successfully moderated the forum for 30 years and learn from them. Well, so a forum obviously is true that there's a kind of a solipsistic aspect to this like circling thing where people get together and they circle around their emotions over and over and over again. Um, And and, and there's no real content there often. It's just and and people think have all these emotional openings and experiences. And then after after that, it's like, you know, what have we what have we really learned here? Um, So I I don't know. There has to be I think uh, there has to be some logos to if that's the correct word, in, in, into the mix. I agree. It's, it's a dynamic interaction. I mean, so, um, yeah, like, okay, so, so let, let, me, let me put a few perspectives on the table, then I'm really interested to see how you guys connect these ideas. Um, so, okay, so the first one, something that you discuss in your book as well, Alexander, in um, referencing Ian McGilchrist, although you don't reference him to sort of support that, uh, exactly the medical research shows that the left hemispheres for this and the right hemispheres for this, but as metaphors. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting. I wrote my really terrible quality master's dissertation. I called it part making, whole making and process. Um, and for me, I did, I, I wrote it, I wrote it. Don't before be I so depressively degrading. You wrote a great thesis. No, no, no. It was shit. And I'll tell you why it was shit because <laughs> so I went to a uh, uh, university of Bristol for the masters, which is a philosophy of like a, one of the top philosophy of science universities. And that wouldn't have been my choice. I made it for personal reasons at the time. It was just economically viable. It's where my girlfriend at the time was going and it was, you know, whatever. So 
but that's not my temperament as a philosopher. Although I'm interested in analytic clarity and I do my best, I'm more of the, you say, continental kind of persuasion. But even putting that aside, I'm interested in a kind of more, um, I'm interested in philosophy as life and philosophy not only in phenomenology, text, but right? I was that, interested that, in phenomenology, but look, I was very interested in psychedelic. Yeah. No, totally so we know agree. that. We know that. And the recognition that the patterns that were important to discuss were things that were to be essentially enacted in the world and that I couldn't cram them. Not only that, but I couldn't cram them into the kind of um, formulaic way that... So I failed essays because I wasn't, wasn't presenting them in a way that people wanted to see essays presented. So... As a compromise, I had to present things in a way which took away a lot of the creative enjoyment for me. And so it's on that basis that I say it was a shit, shit essay. And also because, well, for other things too. But anyway, part making, whole making and process. The idea, broadly speaking, of a, we have this analytical style. So Bertrand Russell spoke about the mystical impulse and the scientific impulse. It's, it's something like this. It's, it's something that's interested in um, seeing things and how they fit together once you've already taken a gestalt and want to sort of dissect it to see if there's consistency. And then there's the capacity to actually integrate and open up and to have a different kind of, of vision, um, just to, to feel one's connectedness to things and to sort of intuit patterns and how things fit together. Um, and I think as cognitive styles, we can tend towards one or the other. And Alexander, you speak about um, philosophy as being something which toes the line between both of these, and that's a smaller percentage of the population. And so, uh, you know, broadly speaking, and this is not exactly precise language, but I kind of like it. I think about it in terms of thinking and feeling. Now, it's not just thinking of I'm be, you have to be, you have to be charitable with me um, with these terms. The way we used now, the, the, the vocabulary used and provoked for Varkivit is that I basically said that we're going to talk about narratives. There are fundamentally three different narratives and our hemispheres make two of them. One is called logos, the other is called pathos. And logos is your thinking and pathos is your feeling. And the mythos, the story we tell about ourselves is the attempt to unify the two. That's why the mythos is tied to the sense of self. So I use logos, pathos and mythos in a very simplified way actually to describe these things to exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, so broadly, we have these different cognitive styles. Some people might tend towards one more than the other, and maybe society even preferences them for various reasons. I mean, you could, might look at autism and various things, and um, the kind of engineering impulse in one way, or the artistic impulse in the other, people can kind of grasp onto these things with. The question is okay, how do these dynamics, as well as a number of other um, ways that we can tend, as archetypal dispositions, how can we include what would be a fuller spectrum of cognitive style and expressive capacity, whether in whatever artistic form, but also perceptual capacity, how to relate these things together in a kind of group dynamic? And there's one more perspective I want to put to you here, and I think you'll enjoy it, enjoy riffing with it. And that's you speak about, obviously, um, so, so you're a, you're a Nietzschean, but also someone who will say, uh, actually, I want to do a patricide on Nietzsche and part of which is beautifully provocative. Okay. It's lovely. Um, and, uh, and you're serious about it in, in an important regard. And I'm not looking to, um, speak to the fullness of why you're serious about that. But one of the reasons is that you recognize the importance that the, the overman of the future, so to, so to say, is not a man, is not one person, certainly not a man, but actually a, a 
group of people, a collective that is recognizes nevertheless the adultification, this individual sovereignty, but the, but the, well, the individual kind of dynamics of inner development, but also the interrelationship. So it's a relational philosophy again. And so it's okay. My proposition would be then it's that it's actually understanding the and and in innovating in this new medium, um, sourcing what our archetypal, archetypal dispositions are through the course of evolution and understanding how they're playing in the new medium. But what's the right relationship of interaction as a, people talk about collective intelligence, but here I think intelligence depends what I mean by intelligence, but let's just go with it. What the right interrelationship of these component parts or individuals are so as to be maximally innovative and actually do this thing of enacting the realization of this shared mythos, which then becomes the thing that is mimicked. And in this way, I see a capacity for um, spreading on a much wider scale. Um, anyway, so that's, the, that's as an initial proposition, something like this. Oh, yeah, I get it. I get it. Uh, we're talking about um, an intelligent group of people that you love to belong to. That's where we call it the gangs. It's like learning how to behave together with four other guys your own age. And then you got the men's group. And the men's group are men of different ages who call each other out. But you have the different formats you can work with. And uh, I would say um, two things. The first thing is that you need to find your own archetype. And your own archetype usually has two levels. That's why we have majors and minors when we go to college. So uh, your first primary archetype is the thing you do with ease without even paying attention to it, but the other people admiring you. And people often mistake this. They often think that they have to work hard to get to their archetype. I said, no, your primary archetype is probably something you just have a lust for naturally. It's just something you're good at. It's like, you know, cooking, walking the dog or whatever. It doesn't have to be that advanced, but something that other people see you doing and they say, wow, he's on fire when he does that and he does it really well. So the primary archetype is don't go too far to find it. Find it very close-knit to yourself. Sometimes you inherit it from your father or your mother. Sometimes you don't, but you know, it's, it's, it's an archetype. And if, if it's not from one of your parents, go find a mentor or asset. Find an older person, preferably your own gender, not necessarily, who has that archetype and has developed it fully who can then teach you and lead you how you develop it. Then you've got a secondary archetype too, which we should point out. The secondary archetype is, this is something you're good at if, you, if somebody has to be. So say somebody's looking for somebody with a specific primary archetype and nobody shows up. Then you say, okay, I'm not an expert at it, but I worked on it and I've got a certain talent for it. So I can take on that responsibility temporarily. And that's when you get challenged to really grow when you go into a secondary archetype. Developing these two archetypes before you're 25 years old and you're lucky. That's a really good starting life. That's what education should give you. That is what your surroundings, your family should give you. That is certainly what your best friends and your social media should give you before you're 25 years old. If you have those, then you next discover that your archetype, because you're younger, your archetype is the archetype of energy. Younger, not a wisdom yet. Because the archetype of wisdom is the one you get when you've done it for years. And you do it with one hand. And yeah, it's the easiest thing in the world because I've done it so many times before. And you can actually become a teacher of it. You can become a role model of it because you can be that when you're older and you have the wisdom of that archetype. But when you're younger, 
you, you have no idea how fun it is to be a mentor. It, it's wonderful to be older and to be a teacher and to be good at something at least and, and be able to teach it and pass it on to somebody younger and see how they try to do it and put tons of energy into it. And they do it more energetically and even more creatively than you do as the wise man because they are having to do it in a novel way. They just don't do it the same way all over. This is the love between generations and looking for a spiritual work. Now, if you then put that into the group context, it could certainly work. What's important here is to not go into a group of people where people are just sort of lazily and almost in an infantile way join the group to avoid hard work. Spirituality is always hard work. Otherwise, it isn't spirituality. So if somebody says that, oh, we're just going to get some people together and you're going to sit here in a circle and here's a little crystal or something you can hold your hand and pass on to the next guy. You talk about your feelings all the time then you got to remember that before you do spiritual work, there's a very simple principle. And that is spiritual work always comes in three steps. You can ask any shaman in Peru, and you and I are into psychedelics, Tim, and I guess Andrew is too, to a certain extent. At least you and I are. Okay, you go and see the shamans. You work with them for months. You really are the young guy because these shamans are old. They know shit. So they're wise and they adopt you and you're happy to be the young archetype energetic version, right? You learn from them and you try to figure out what they do. And you also try to figure out how could I possibly take this with me back to Europe and implement it in the West, right? But you learn from them. The first thing you learn from Seamus is this. Everything is done in three steps. Number one is intention. Number two is the ceremony. And number three is the integration. And this goes for group exercises too, even more so. That's why I tell people, if, you, if, if people call you and want you to join the spiritual group of some kind of going to get together, ask them what the intention is. And then go to yourself and be tough on yourself and look at your own intentions at the moment. And if your intentions, where you're at in your spiritual work with yourself and your own meditation contemplation practice has nothing to do with what they're up to, then tell them so and say, thank you for the invite. Good luck with everything. I'm in a different place right now because I can't see how my intention right now rhymes with your intention. But if I'm wrong about your intention, please let me know. So sit down with people and ask them what the intention is. Then you can conduct the circling or the workshop or the educational collaboration or, or, or the collaborative art project like you do to Burning Man. And then you can also enjoy integrating it afterwards, which you can do when you leave that place. You can do it online. You meet three, three weeks later and said, wasn't it fun to do this together? Yeah, this happened to me and that happened to you. And you, know, and, and you can integrate. So the next intention you take on with the same group is on a higher level. Now, if you do that, if you think intention, ceremony, integration, then I'm all for group collaborations. But I always ask myself these days not to waste time. My time on anybody else's time is that, what is the intention here? And I said, okay, if I should have read a certain book or seen a certain film or studied something before this group gets together, then I should really do that. I take responsibility for that. Part of my intention is my preparation for this work because I'm not going to sit there and pretend just by reading a Wikipedia article and dropping a few names that understand what you guys are talking about. That's just, that's just, that's just being deeply unserious about spiritual work. And, yeah. and I think if, if, if people can get both the archetype for their own, their own level, right, and then look at the mixing of archetypes, which, which is a great group. A great group is a mixing archetype. A congregation is the full, full schema of archetypes. That's yeah. like, like a congregation, a religious congregation, is the imitation of the tribe in its full glory. Now, if, if we do that serious work, then I'm all for it. Yes, I, I, I subscribe to all of these ideas, but I think it's really important to get the grounding 
proper first, properly first. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you for outlining that. I um, I think it's really you know valuable. because taking psychedelics is the same thing. You don't throw psychedelics into the throat of a complete unknown who's not prepared for it. Absolutely. That preparation so is everything, yeah. isn't it? A preparation yeah. is the intentional part, right? You have to do a lot of preparation for stuff. I think you know preliminary preparation. I, I take this. I take this very seriously. But just to um, recall something we said at the beginning of this conversation, something you outlined in your early, early um, introduction, Alexander, was that well, we are in the midst of a paradigm shift, and there is much of the wisdom that got us here which must be recalibrated and sort of taken forward and we can still be informed by deep history. I'm totally with you. I think it's deeply important. And um, it's one of the reasons I love, I love your work and appreciate the podcast and all the rest of it. And at the same time, there's also a sense in which we're stepping into novel terrain. My sense is the organization, the emergent organization of what archetypes are in fact necessary and what's called in us to be able to interact in these new mediums is itself there's something different there or at least there could be and if that's the case what then for basically uh the experimentation as far as it goes is a work in progress <laughs> let's put it like that you know so it's kind of like yes um intention ceremony integration absolutely am i sure of what the most important intentions are what all the archetypes are what the ceremony precisely needs to be and also what the integration practices are no i'm, I'm not sure about those things um but there's there's some stuff there and i think this is where the innovation needs to occur sure yeah because yeah. i think I'll some of the, the thought yeah. okay go ahead I just we had the thought at... that there's there's a kind of problem with these sort of things when you get very very ambitious and you try to create some grandiose thing, where where the the people who started Burning Man probably just a couple guys like, you know like this thing that Jesus says if two or three people are gathered in my name that's all you you really you really need, on some level but no, absolutely trying, trying to create this superstructure uh, and and be in, incredibly ambitious. This is purely um, in the um, vision space. This is purely in yeah. what's conceptually possible by, by, by way and, and integrating that with this uh, dynamic that we've got going on here, which has the exodus on the one hand and just how big is the separation going to be? Like my intentions are not uh, any more grandiose than it's appropriate to, to have them. And that really is nested in the fact that there's not a person, well, there are people I meet who, who I am wary that I cannot extend a hand of interaction to in a way that's um, not, you know, um, aware of the fact it may not be taken well or something like this. But for the most part, you know, <laughs> I, a gathering of intelligent people, beautiful, but, but I also... I, I know that there is a capacity to remember what to care about and to hold the space of relational integrity that doesn't require the kind of intellectual capacity that can grasp and vibrate up and down the full stack of these ideas, but nevertheless knows what the fuck to care about and can tell if someone is not showing up with integrity. This speaks to the kind of matriarchal role, perhaps, as you describe it, Alexander, in, in your work and what have you. But broadly speaking, this, like, you know, I, I don't, you know, beautiful things are possible when speaking with someone who is, has the appropriate open stance, 
where they're willing to stand in their own truth and be um, and confrontational even if necessary, but who can then ultimately as well surrender when it's appropriate for them to accept the kind of flow of another. And whether they have much to add, it's like, man, we are obviously, we're creatures with a lineage of billions of fucking years. The pattern recognition and the intuitive capacity for just helping spark something is beautiful. So in my opinion, there is, if, if there is the capacity to listen deeply and well, and to make one's presence felt in a situation, then, then, then there's something to add to that collective dynamic. Yeah, uh, some of this is rhetoric, and rhetoric is a fantastic science in itself. I mean, how do you speak properly to other people? How do you behave in a certain environment? How do you find out the context before you enter the room? Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, Q, I call that the sacred art of invitation yeah. making, actually. Yeah. No, I, and, and we live in a very heated environment at the moment, but on the other hand, I'm one of those who, who, you know, I can behave in a very hot way on Twitter because I think the medium itself is that medium, okay? But I certainly wouldn't behave the same way if I go to a dinner party. So uh, I, I think I'm, I'm trying to experiment just like everybody else is, and I take responsibility for the things I do, and I listen to constructive criticism at all times and do all those things. I think of it as, as contextuality. And contextuality now means that we are so many new media, so many new environments, so many new interfaces like this one. We're on Zoom, we're doing a three Zoom, a format that was only invented a few months ago, and uh, we're experimenting with it as we go Which along. we invented, by the way, no. <laughs> yeah. At least the word three Zoom, yeah, I think so. Yeah, but it's widespread now, three Zooms and four Zooms. Okay, so, um, but that's a new interface. It will require new rhetoric eventually. Uh, I just think it's all again about a question of timing. So when do you jump yes. to the rhetoric? And and I'm I'm one of these people who says that okay, if you go to the rhetoric too quickly, the problem is you will kill the trickster. And this is what Jordan mm -hmm. Peterson agrees with me. He says that if you go too quickly, oh, to yeah. you have to be safe in a certain way. Uh, for example, that to me, historically speaking, it's typical sort of little nervous middle class behavior. It's just like, okay, don't use certain words, don't behave in certain ways because it's impolite and somebody might be offended. Okay, it always turns out that it's some, it's some middle class church lady who's offended at all times, right? So some people take <laughs> to offense very quickly and that is just human. It happens yeah. all the time. But if you learn from history, I'm one of these guys who says that, okay, rhetoric is fantastic, absolutely needed, and we will have to reinforce rhetoric. It's called moderation and censorship because we cannot have all the floodgates open at all times and then we're drenched in you know, violent child porn or whatever evil man can come up with because man can come up with tons of evil, right? So we don't want that here, right? We, what we, there's certain limits to what we do. We, that's what we build. We build a wall around the community and we have a clever guy who's experienced who sits at the porch at the wall and decides who gets in, who gets out. That's called membrane theory. It, it's yeah, every, yeah. every life form is dependent on it. You cannot let any, everybody into every life cell because then all the cells die. Same thing here. And rhetoric is part of that. Rhetoric is essentially the 10 Burning Man principles. It's essentially, okay. here are the conditions for everybody and they're all equal for everybody who joins. They're all the and same. Just to, just to interject, um, you know, I remember somebody saying in a community that I was involved in, it's good to have a crazy person there somehow, like a fool yeah. or a madman. Yeah. Or a, if the community is too clean and, and, and if it's too, uh, then, then um, 
Yeah, then then the, then the, 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 there has to be that dynamic of disruption as well. Uh, uh, other, otherwise, it becomes a very sterile environment. We have them at our men's events, uh, you know, who are talking about that. Yeah. We, have, we have a couple of these guys and, and the guys go, well, that guy's such a lunatic. Why do you even allow him in? It's just like, if he wasn't here, we wouldn't have a lunatic here. Oh, that'd be a lot worse. Yes. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah. thank you for appreciating the joker or the trickster role. And, and don't, so this is what I'm concerned with is that if we let uh, a certain middle-class behaviors that we're comfortable with dictate our social environments, then working class people will be excluded. People with different backgrounds will be excluded because they won't feel at all they're part of it. And we will not be inclusive. So to be inclusive is that as long as we allow the trickster in the room to behave like an asshole at times and, and be, you know, and he, after all, tricksters do not take responsibility for what they do. They're the only archetype that is relieved of responsibility for their own actions. The rest of us have to, but the trickster is not, okay. If the trickster is allowed to be in the room, I'm comfortable that anybody can feel welcome if they walk into the room as long as they speak the same language. That is to me the lowest level of rhetoric I will have to accept, and especially in experimental environments. So we foster people during the intention process and the preparation process. This is going to be a tough ride. Not tough in the sense that you'll be you know, intensely challenged. You'll be welcome to stay. Hang on in there. But there will be people around who will start doing and saying things you never thought you'd ever have to hear. Okay. But just allow that to happen. Let it pass on. And it's not your responsibility to care of it because we have moderators who do. So rather look at the moderators and how they work. And if they do their job well, you've got perfect role models for you to want to become a moderator and make an even better environment. And, and that's where rhetoric comes into the picture. Not, not too early, but, but at the stage when you want to lift the whole level. And again, it's part of the intentional process. If part of the integration was, it was a good, it was a good weekend we shared together, but hey, it was meaner and crueler and nastier than it would have to be. A lot of that was just completely unnecessary. Then it becomes part of the next intentional process to include more rhetoric in the mix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also I find when it's, when the, the atmosphere is, is there's something, especially in Anglo-Saxon culture, there, there's, there's this pathology of nice, you know, being, being being there's kind of like i especially find it in the british people there's they have they're very nice and sweet and diplomatic with you and and they want everything to be you know uh, and then but there's a knife and that you get in the back afterwards right um there, there are hidden knives in, in an atmosphere that that's too um yeah Andrew and I bitch about this when we talk about England. Yeah, we bitch so. about it. <laughs> and we, we talk about England, but I think it's I think it's very Anglo-Saxon. I think like um, you know, I, I, I see rough, it in my own I think culture. I think the rough guys went to the colonies and therefore much rougher. So. Exactly. That's this is that's us here right now. The 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 ones who escaped the the polite it's, society. It's, it's like the it's like the South African <laughs> peasants. The South African peasants I ram and when I grew up at least, there's no way uh, they could arrive an Essex wife's dinner in london you know it's just like <laughs> yeah maybe yeah. way too rough for that yeah. environment but it's just yeah, it, that's cultural difference yeah yeah mm. so yeah no this is uh this is beautiful i um i just want to check in how, how long do we have we're speaking for two hours we got a little bit longer how are we feeling yeah we can sort of start rounding it off but I, it's been wonderful yeah yeah, wonderful. I yeah, love this conversation. No, yeah. really yeah, good I'm okay Whatever really good yeah, I, I, uh, so moving to Australia at 11, you can imagine like I, I sounded, I, I wasn't um, eaten posh, 
you know, I didn't have the the royal aristocracy posh accent, but I had the kind of um, private school London boys accent. Um, and, uh, you know, you can still see that come through a little bit, but my family wasn't of that kind of, it didn't come from that way. My dad made, um, you know, enough, enough money that he put me in that school. And so you can imagine me going to Australia, uh, as 11 years old, very, very pale, very, very posh within the first week, uh, I had a broken nose concussion. My arm was broken. Um, and you know, like, yeah, it's beautiful. And, uh, ever since then, yeah. it's been an interesting relationship for me to immediately get a sense of how to relate to, you can say the kind of the working class Australian hyper masculinist tendency of those group dynamics. And I still sound like I sound, so I'm immediately still taken to be other, but generally speaking, I like playing with it and have quite a bit of fun with it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's important to, um, I, I really appreciate all the dynamics we've spoken to here. Um, the inclusion of the trickster, very important. Yeah. You still do the hums, hums. Mm -hmm. not, well, as, not as often as Prince Andrew does though, but you know, <laughs> well, I feel like I come from, uh, I think for me, like I feel almost the opposite experience. I come from kind of, you know, uh, well, just middle-class Canada is, is, is it's kind of, it's kind it, it has a roughness to it. Right. And then I come to France and France, everything is artifice and manners. And, you know, there, there is a kind of, uh, you know, emotional honesty in, in France, but, but, uh, but uh, it's like moving from non-artifice to artifice, you know, I, what you're describing is sort of the opposite going from artifice to. Hmm. And I sort of moved from Australia to Canada because I moved from South Africa to Scandinavia. So <laughs> and I do go to England it's and I've been direction. working in England for, I've been working in London for the last 30 years, but it, there's nothing in me that wants to move there. I love being in London. I love seeing my friends and hanging out with them, but I don't want to move there. I just, it's just not my taste. It's just not my thing. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, I'm feeling cool. pretty good with this. I, I, um, I want to ask you one more question, though, Ted. Sure. It's like, so when you talk about these, there obviously is like a, a major grassroots movement. Um, it doesn't want to fall into the old trap that we call New Age. Yeah. It wants to take spirituality seriously. Yeah. It wants to have a spirituality which is compatible with science in the best mm -hmm. possible way. It wants a spirituality that is interested in all spiritual traditions. It doesn't turn its back on Christianity or Judaism or Islam or anything. It just researched them all. Um, and, and it's sort of very welcoming in that sense. And it's digitally savvy. And I think it's happening already in the UK, the US, certainly here in Scandinavia. We're seeing it in Europe too. It seems to be bottom up, which is very healthy, right? So it's, it's, it's meant to be learned from and role model and be prototyped rather than it's being dictated. And I don't think anybody would step forward today if a Favarki or a Hall or goddamn it, not Alexander Barber would step forward and say, this is how you must conduct your spirituality. They'd be just be laughed at for good reasons, right? This is, this is, a, this is a moment that really wants to be bottom up. But where do, where do you see it going over the next five, 10 years? Where do, where do you see you have the growth aches and pain aches and, and where does it come through very quickly right now? Oof. Yeah. Um, a big question for me is, um, my roots in Australia and whether or not there is something ripe here to build. And I haven't given up on that. And over the next couple of months, it's something I want to put um, more energy into. I've been involved a lot more paying attention to the things worldwide. Um, mm. 
Well, speaking to the Australian context, what I see is that there's, well, this is broader as well. There's this relationship between um, spirituality and entrepreneurs, where there's a sort of interaction between spirituality and the market that I am skeptical of. I don't think it is this grassroots that you're actually speaking to. I'm particularly interested in coming into more clarity about the relationship between spirituality and the commons and spirituality and the market. And I'm, I'm, the kind of sustainability that I see will come from real relationships based in an understanding of a sort of in-touchness with, with, with fellowship, friendship, there's nature-based shamanism, that's for sure. There's a, a big movement towards connecting with nature in Australia, which is very interesting. And there's a big psych- and there's the psychedelic stuff as well. The psychedelic stuff can have a lot of the new age lack of rigor in it um, and a f- too much of a focus sometimes on purely the therapy. Um, so there's that that I'm, I'm looking for more integration with a kind of more... Uh, say kind of um can i give you can i give you two terms here you could play with one is the the guru weekend you Mm -hmm. go off and you pay you pay a lot Mm -hmm. of money to see a guru Mm -hmm. for a weekend and then you left back in your previous life right after and the other one is congregation congregation Mm -hmm. is something where nobody makes money out of nobody else but you do meet on a regular basis and you create a spiritual community together those are those are the two extremes i see right now. yeah 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 that's nice. That sense Australia is very similar here to, to Europe. And for example, psychedelics are moving into spirituality. The question is, is it going to be the congregation that takes care of that? Or is it just going to be these gurus who give you psychedelics and, and you pay, you pay $3,000 for a long weekend with them? Or where is that going to end up? Yeah. Um, well, we're going to see both. And so my, in some sense, my response is that the digital interaction actually needs to be like what I'm, the vision that I've wanted to be part of creating has always been to establish a kind of um, authentic and integrous field of interaction where you can have, it's like, okay, you're doing it in this way. Come step into this, come step into this space, speak your piece. Like you'll be heard and addressed and we can have a confrontation. We can do all the rest of it. The answer is I kind of don't know. My personal um, interest is in the congregation style. I'm skeptical of gurus in general. I think as a philosophical point, um, I've spent quite a lot of time listening to and like contemplating someone like Adi Da, for instance. Um, and I am very, very skeptical of someone placing themselves beyond. Ec- you should. You should be having satsang together in some important sense, right? That you have to come have satsang with me and I'm your portal. It's like, all right, big man, let's see then. Okay. I don't know. So I'm more on the side of the congregation, to be honest with you. We had that problem here in Europe this year. And there were so many of the older men who got so tired in men's work of just doing it for free. And they're professionally trained therapists and things like that. So we decided to split the movement, but make it very clear that there's, we call it the manifesto network which is a network of men who do men's events around Europe. And it works wonderfully. It's flat in structure, decentralized, work for four years. Nobody gets paid. But then we also started the Manifesto Core this year, which is essentially an agency for appointed, you know, formal advisors and therapists and things who do men's work but do it professionally. And they will charge you some for doing the work they do because they're replacing 
other therapists and professional work and things like that. I think it has to be this sort of division between the two. That's why I love the Burning Man movement because eventually at the end of the day, you had to employ a few people at Burning Man headquarters in San Francisco to keep the whole machine together. You gotta have some people in there who work full time. Like you gotta have a priest or a pastor in your congregation. You gotta pay somebody to do the work. You don't pay them a lot, but you pay them so they can do it professionally, right? But the rest of the work is all supporting one another in your spare time outside of work. And that's exactly why it goes so deeply spiritual. And I think to define these, the congregation versus the commercial activities, I think the problem with New Age was that it ended up as nothing but these guru weekends. Mm -hmm. It was was just a marketplace where it's like, buy this crystal here and buy this stuff here and go to see this guru here. And you have to pay a lot for it to have somebody take you through a portal or whatever. And, and yeah. we know that's not spirituality. That's and just often the, the best stuff is, is you just find somewhere in, a, in an odd place and it's free. You know, you hardly pay anything for it. And it's has way more actual value than the, the guy who's charging, uh, you know, uh, thousands of euros an hour to, to, to do satsang with them or whatever the hell. Yeah, yeah I, I tried to work with those things. That's why I'm getting involved with the hackers here in Europe, so that goes if they like me or not. But it, Burners and the men's movement and the hackers is are three movements that have emerged. They already exist. I don't have to be one of the innovators of them. They already exist. They fascinate me. They're flat in structure, and they work towards a common shared goal, which is way bigger than any personal goal could ever be, like fixing the men so the women have some men, men to marry, like men's movement. Burners, it's just like exploring the possibility of creating temporary communist utopias and go into that experience as a full-on spiritual exercise where everybody else is there, needs this as much as you do, and everybody else is there is there without getting paid for it. That that's a deeply spiritual experience. And the same thing with the hackers, because today, if you look at the world politically, fighting communist China's dictatorship is probably the coolest thing you can do. You can't be anything cooler than a Taiwanese hacker who tries to get through Chinese censorship. And I think hackers, again, they're doing this in their spare time. They're doing it for the love of it. They're doing it because it is a good thing to do, right? Uh, and and that's what spirituality is. That's what the word amateur means. It means in Italian, it means to, to do what you love, or it's like to love what yeah. you do. So, so it's like an amateur activity where you're motivated. You have a pure motivation, right? You, you don't have a mixed motivation. You're not trying to seduce or, you know, somebody. Do you in, mean that I have some... to stop calling myself an amateur faggot now? <laughs> yeah, <there> you <laughs> you're you're a professional thing. So, amateur, yeah. So maybe amateur just, means to love. It means to love. Amateur, yeah. mm. love what you do. Yeah. That's interesting. So maybe just a nod to a future conversation might be to um, discuss the. I'm very interested in your thoughts about hierarchy. You mentioned flat structure. Uh, I can't speak to this stuff with. Um, articulate language but in the in an image the image in my mind is is not a flat structure but something like a wave right that can um come together and have um discernible uh teacherly authority or individuals who can disseminate wisdom and of course this is something i know you agree with it flows into the rest of our conversation you've got the people who have the knowledge they've got the skills like you have your particular archetypes so how can we lead and follow it's like a dance hey where one leads at one time one follows at another and how can we have the capacity to discern when to you know embody which role and it doesn't look like a flat thing it looks like a it looks like a a wave to me it looks like something dynamic 
Yeah, we could call it micro-hierarchies if you prefer that word. I, I, I'm not scared of the word hierarchy to begin with. It's, not, it's a great mm-hmm. word. It's just like mm-hmm. patriarchy is a great word. You just have matriarchy next to it, for God's sake. <laughs> it's matriarchy that was lacking. It wasn't patriarchy it was too much of. So take back these words and redefine them. I use the word God in my work. I just put God into the future. If God doesn't exist yet, then he could certainly, or she, or whatever, could exist in the future. So let's take back these words and, and, and use them again. And for example, I used during a conversation, I talked about wisdom and energy and the relationship between the older, and the, the older mentor and the young mentee. So in the mentorship relationship, of course, there's, there are two hierarchies. One hierarchy is the hierarchy of wisdom. The older mentor is supposed to know more within that archetype and therefore teach and lead the younger person. But the younger person has an hierarchy of energy. So what you contribute to any environment you're in, you're at the top of that hierarchy. So if you cook the food in a group of people, you're at the top of the food hierarchy because you're responsible for the kitchen. You cook the food. That's hierarchy. That's what hierarchy is. Hierarchy is the way an emergent collective quickly organizes itself into its different archetypes. So it's, it's yeah, natural, it's way like it's, it's a natural process. It's a natural hierarchy. Yeah, it's a natural. Yeah, it will, it will happen quite quickly. And, and what I mean with flat, it's that it, the sums overall are flat in the sense that nobody has an officially dominant position where they can say yes or no to everybody else. So what you do, for example, if you run a large flat network of 500 men in Europe all work with men's events and men's work, and that's a lot of very you know, bullheaded men there, the way you do it, that's you basically appoint a few guys to be moderators of the group and place them on a slightly higher level because they actually have an authority that the other guys don't have. But you're aware of that. And that's all you need to do to keep the rest of the hierarchy as flat as you, as you can because you think that organization works best when it's decentralized. And it very often turns out to be the case when you're going to compare cultures and compare examples and compare role modeling. That's when it's great to have a decentralized network. But when you're just going to implement an order, so we're going to have to build this building now. You don't want to have people sitting around forever circling, talking about their feelings. No, you want them to get up, each take their responsibility for the, the thing they've been appointed to do, and then go off and do it so the building gets built. That's different. That's a different type of hierarchy. Mm. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. I'm interested in the relationship between uh, the moderator and the shaman. Can you speak to that at all? Are these uh, like are these different in your analysis, in your view? Yeah, a moderator is priestly, meaning it's shamanic, but inside the tribe. Okay, shamans prefer to be outside everything. <laughs> you find them living in the forest cooking witches' brews most of the time. They take tons of drugs, and they often die young, and they experiment with themselves and their surroundings in the most hideous ways, and that's exactly why they're shamanoids, as we call them. Shamanoid is actually the psychological term for shamanic people. So we expect about 4% of the population to have strong characteristics that are called shamanoid. These are people that are often better off outside in the forest living away from society. They have been been idolized over the last, say, 50 to 100 years, way more than they expected to. That's why we have dying rock stars as role models, which I think was a terrible idea, to be honest about it, even if it was fun. Okay, but the shamanoid characters are like that. But when the shamanoids work within the tribal environment and put on a robe, a priest is essentially one of the shamans who takes on a robe to go into the community to take on shamanic responsibilities. And shamanic is always go-between. It's, it's go between between tribes. It's go between between man and the gods, 
Yeah. And it's go between, between men and women. And then it's called androgynous people. That's when androgynous characters are similar to shamanoid characters. And they're another 4% of the overall population. So these tiny minorities, the androgynous caste and the shamanic caste are people we should really care about in our community. But we should also put them in the right place and not idolize them as a norm for everybody else. That's exactly why the LGBT movement went overboard in the last 20 years, when instead of fighting for its own rights and being proud of itself, it started to react like everybody had to be like them. That, that, that is exactly where things start to go wrong. So. I am totally pro-androgynous caste, totally pro-shamanic caste work, and these people in my work, adamant about it too. But when the shamans or the androgynous people take on robes to live within the community of the inner circuit or the outer circuit, the matriarchy or the patriarchy, which are the dominant modes of society, then they can come, become, for example, a moderator. And a moderator is why? It's a person with experience, who can be tough when needed, and who's not invested in the value of the group. So you cannot be corrupted. That's a good moderator. Always appoint the person who's been around for a while, seen this and that, and can take on that responsibility. Said, listen, I'll take it on. I'll be the moderator. Next year, you can decide whether they did a good job or not and elect me again or pick somebody else, but I'm gonna be here for a year. I'm gonna moderate this group. And because I'm not too much invested in the group itself, then I'm a good moderator. Otherwise, you're picking a guru and he becomes a sect leader and then you got a sect, and you don't actually have a thriving community. That's the problem. So another thing with the moderator, pick several, have a few of them who trust each other, but they have different backgrounds, different cultures, different genders. Uh, you know, They can represent the outside world in different ways, and that's when you get a good mix of moderators. And, and the bigger the forum gets, the more moderators you need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Andrew, Alexander, it's been really bloody nice to have this conversation. I've been really looking forward to it. Thank you so much for being here. Incredible thank conversation. So much, thank thank yes. you so much. Yeah. It yeah. goes three ways. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much.